turbulent times call for clear-headed insight. That's hard to come by these days, especially on TV. That's where we come in. Salem News Channel has the greatest collection of conservative minds all in one place. People you know and trust, like Dennis Prager, Eric Metaxas, Charlie Kirk, and more. Unfiltered, unapologetic truth. Find what you're searching for at snc.tv and on Local Now Channel 525. It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Happy Tuesday to you. It is the 17th of November, 5 after 5, and welcome. Good to have you on board for this edition of Lifeline. Hope you're doing well today. We start off a brand new week. Well, sort of. Started the week yesterday, for those of you that are keeping close track. <laughs> and uh, we've got a lot to to, uh, to break down in the program tonight. Relationship to important stories going on in the news. We're going to be joined a little bit later on in this hour by constitutional lawyer Brad Dacus. He, of course, of the Pacific Justice Institute to talk a bit about Purple. I was commenting with a friend last night about what happened to the day and age when when red was the danger color. We had red related to things like terrorist attacks, red alert when it comes to things like forest fire danger. And yet the most dangerous level of increase and spread of COVID-19, it's not red, it's purple. (laughs) They run out of colors. <laughs> Who decides these things? Well, we're going to talk not only about some of that craziness, but more importantly, the utter inconsistency of application of rules and regulations as to who can and can't meet where and when, and the why and how that you would tell a church you can't meet, but a strip club, yeah, that's okay. I don't really don't get it. We'll uh, see if we can't get a little sense of out of all of this and lawsuits that are filing back and forth all across the state. Brad Dacos will join us for that update later on in this hour. We begin, though, with some discussion about um, the post-election environment in which we all live. And I don't want to dive into the morass of Rudy Giuliani and what states are being challenged and which ones are and which ones aren't. So far, most of the lawsuits have gone absolutely nowhere. But there are broader questions in relationship to what got us here in the first place, meaning the influence of forces that have some ability to sway our opinion and therefore our vote, and whether or not it is high time that we not only call some of these influence makers to um, the question or to account, but maybe even go as far as suggesting high time they just be broken up. It's just you know, remember back during the economic crisis, 2008, 2009, we were busy bailing out banks that were too big to fail. Maybe this is a case where we can no longer support media companies that are just too big to protect, to, to uh, uh, allow their continued influence. 
Joining me with some insights and commentary is author, commentator, and the host of the longest-running libertarian talk show in America today. He is Bob Zadek, host of The Bob Zadek Show, broadcast here in the San Francisco Bay region every Sunday at 8 a.m. on 860 a.m. The Answer, our sister station. And, Robert, as always, a privilege to have you join us. Thank you so much for having me again. You're a wonderful host. Well, we know, Bob, certainly this is not the first time that this debate over the power and influence of organizations, uh, media giants like uh, Twitter and Facebook has been called into question. But there's an even broader push going on right now. We've heard the rumblings increase in the days leading up to the election and will no doubt continue into the next uh, congressional session come January. And that is the idea that maybe we really need to look at many of these companies and ask ourselves the question, have we allowed them to become such giant opinion influencers that they have an inordinate amount of power to not only sway opinions, but therefore, as a result, sway votes effectively, making the users of these platforms like minions working on behalf of Jack Dempsey or uh, Mark Zuckerberg at all. What is your thought about this? Is there such a thing in the environment today when we have not one or two or three television networks, but hundreds of them, and not one or two or three newspapers, but if you include the Internet, tens of thousands of them, is this really something that poses that much of a threat that requires government intervention? And if so, what, what does that look like? I mean, for example, how do you break up the quote-unquote Google monopoly? Do you say that we're going to limit the number of searches that a person can do per day or maybe the number of uh, people based on IP address that can use Google? How, how do we go about even beginning the dialogue as to if they need to be controlled or limited, how to do that? Well, you said, how do we go about doing it, begging the question of whether we should do it. You, you teed up this topic with a very interesting phrase. You said, and I was paying attention, as I always do when you speak, and you said, have we allowed these organizations, these profit-making companies, to get too large? How does one actually allow a company to do anything? We don't. All we do, Craig, is buy their product. And in the case of Google, we don't have to buy it because it's free. So, therefore, nobody allowed Google to do anything. They got where they are by offering a service for free to the public. And they built a business model around that. Now, of course, nothing is quite free, but to you and I as consumers, it is economically free. And what we do is we have monetized information about our lives, about ourselves. And we have made a pact with Google. Okay, Google. Okay, Twitter. Okay, Facebook. We will willingly tell you, in some cases, pretty intimate details about our life. We're just going to tell you. And you could use that as part of your business model any way you wish in exchange for us giving away information about ourselves voluntarily, I must might add, in exchange for that, Facebook, I get to use all of the brilliant apps that you have built for free. So we have made a 
an exchange. We have traded something that is worth nothing to us economically, our privacy, in exchange for something of great value, or else we wouldn't do it. So, first of all, to kind of paraphrase this old uh, advertising slogan from a couple of decades ago, where's the beef? So, who did anything wrong in your opening question? Now, of course, today, today before Congress, we had Dempsey and we had Zuckerberg, being reamed once more by members of Congress acting indignantly about what Facebook and uh, Twitter have done. And of course, what they have done is they did nothing unlawful. They are a private company. So long as they do not break any laws, which there has been no accusation that they've broken any laws, they did nothing wrong. And therefore, the complaint is well, they're just plain too big. Well, big isn't bad. Big is neutral. If they use their bigness for bad purposes, that's a different conversation. But if you want to attack big, let's attack Washington. They're the biggest of all. So let's attack them because of their bigness, but don't attack a private business whose only crime is to be big. You know, I was curious about all this, Bob, is the fact that if we go back, let's say, a, a generation ago, let, let, let's turn back the clock 30 years, we want to talk about media-related choices that we would have providing information to us that would inform our understanding of the world around us, contribute perhaps to uh, our opinions that would eventually influence our vote. Well, my goodness, if you want to call it a monopoly, I think it certainly could be argued to one degree or the next that organizations like NBC, CBS, ABC, ABC must have been in massive violation of antitrust laws because here you had three networks that influenced and dominated the opinions of, of people all across the country with no other alternatives. Now, some might argue, well, amongst the three, there were the alternatives. But when you compare that today, when there are not half a dozen networks, but there are literally hundreds of networks and, uh, dare we say, tens of hundreds of thousands of millions of websites that are available out there that can effectively do the same thing, reach people, inform people, educate people, mold opinions. I'm a little bit at a loss for the gripe that Google is too big or Apple has too much influence or why do we allow Facebook to do what it does when people have not only other alternatives to them, for example, if you don't like Google, fine, use Bing, use DuckDuckGo as alternative search engines, or if not, do do what they used to do back in the old days, kind of, you know, fundamental to American innovation. If you don't like Ford, go build a Chevy. You're exactly right. And, and let's remember that um, Facebook and Google have monetized the information about you, but the only way they got the information, the only way they got what used to be called the private facts of your life, they are no longer private because you made the, one makes them not private. The only way they got that information is you gave that to them. You gave it to them. They didn't get it by tapping your phone. They didn't get it by spying on you. They got it because you voluntarily gave that to them. And by the way, most people really don't care very much. And indeed, there probably is a public good by Google 
or Facebook monetizing the information about you. Because you know what that means, Craig? It means I don't get advertisements for things I don't care about. I, I get too many advertisements as it is. But at least I'm not getting advertisements for baby food or the perfect pet food if you have an alligator as a pet. Because I don't have an alligator as a pet. I don't care about <laughs> alligator food. I get, I get amazingly targeted ads, which means a lot of them are useful. So I have no beef with Facebook sharing stuff about me. I want them to, so I don't get annoying ads that are useless to me. The quality of the, quality of the ads I get is better. So, so there's no victim here. Now, the, to be sure, the complaint is, and we can get into this, Craig, because there is a deep, somewhat complex legal issue involved uh, in, to the extent that Twitter and Facebook are censoring, and that word is the wrong word. I use it intentionally incorrectly, because censorship generally means the government unlawfully interfering with freedom of speech. That's what censorship usually means. A private company really can't censor. They can do what they want with their property. Like, I can decide I'm not going to go to see Susan Sarandon movies because I don't like her politics. I am sort of censoring her in my own little private way, and people could do it collectively. But that's not censorship. That's me voting with my dollars. That's allowed in this country. So the, it, the first instance, uh, you have to focus on what, by the way, I hate Twitter, uh, and I'm not, I'm not fond of, of Zuckerberg on a personal level for other reasons, but what in the world have they done wrong? And if we say they have manipulated elections, because that's what Washington is on a dither about, they are somehow manipulating the election. A, there's no proof they affected the outcome, and B, they didn't really manipulate the election because they are allowed to carry or not carry what they wish. Now, there are legal consequences down the road, and we can get into Section 230 if you wish in this broadcast or some other broadcast, but on the surface, they're doing nothing wrong except giving away a product to a bunch of consumers who found it to be a good use of their time. I don't. But many, you know, half a billion people do, so God bless them. Yeah, and I, I, I concur with you on that point. I am not a consumer of either of their products, never have been, don't have any interest to this day in doing so. That said, you bring out some very salient points that I want to dive deeper into after a timeout. First part of the complaint, of course, is, well, they're censoring, or, or maybe better word, muting other voices or some might argue, questioning false narratives. And, of course, then it's in the eye of the beholder as to what the truth is. People don't like that. And yet what I find ironic is how often did we hear the same complaints 30, 40, 50 years ago against the average newspaper, privately held, who has a letters to the editor section, but they pick and choose which letters they print. They also have an editorial page where they are happy to engage in opinions related to the ownership of that newspaper and what cause celeb of the day he or she perhaps wishes to endorse. The irony is it's far more difficult for you to decide I'm going to go and open a newspaper and compete head-to-head with the New York Times, USA Today, the San Francisco Chronicle, all of whom have engaged in their own version of, again, uh, 
controlling of other voices or or censorship, if you're more comfortable with that word. And yet nobody said, hey, how how come I can't get any letter that I write to the Chronicle printed and guaranteed? Well, it's because somebody in the editorial department at the newspaper decided your letter would not get printed. Is that censorship per se? Let's talk more about this as we continue our conversation with author, commentator, and host of the Bob Zadek Show. Bob Zadek is program broadcast here locally in the San Francisco Bay region every Sunday at 8 a.m. on 860 a.m. The Answer. Information available about Bob's guests, resources, podcasts, uh, details, too, about his many best-selling books online at bobzadek.com. That's B-O-B-Z-A-D-E-K. This time out, we'll come back with more opinion and insight from Bob Zadek. Right now, though, we get some facts about traffic. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome back. So do we argue that the newspapers back in the days were engaging in horrific degrees of censorship because they picked and choose which letters to the editor that they would publish or what would appear on their editorial page, even what kind of advertising, perhaps, that they would accept. Uh, to be sure, people like William Randolph Hearst of the uh, the old uh, Examiner days were, uh, were often credited with not only doing that to the nth degree, but even making up news, therefore the term yellow journalism. Trump always refers to fake news, but I think the more accurate historical term would be yellow journalism. And Bob Zadek is with us today, author, commentator, host of the Bob Zadek Show, heard Sunday mornings. It's a great alternative to the Talking Head programs. Digs deep. It's intelligent. It's not an hour of people screaming at each other, but a really well-thought-out conversation dealing with the issues of the day. You can catch his program Sunday mornings at 8 a.m. on 860 a.m. The Answer, and you're certainly invited to check out his website for more resources and information at bobzadek.com, B-O-B-Z-A-D-E-K.com. And, and Bob, I, I have to look at this and wonder, you know, is, is it a question of them controlling too much, if they're censoring certain um, uh, users or content on Twitter, Facebook, at all? Um, and therefore, that's leading people to be influenced in a way that they vote in a certain direction. Is that the problem? Or if maybe the problem not with the producer but with the consumer, the populace, that largely, in my opinion, lacks critical thinking, doesn't read or um, observe, partake in all or multiple news sources, and oftentimes perhaps is either un- or undereducated. Isn't that really more of the issue at hand here? Actually, it's neither, in my opinion, Craig. Uh, A word about um, the newspapers and bias and things of that nature before I answer your question, which I will do, of course. Uh, If you go back to the first contested presidential election in American history. Uh, It was Adams versus Jefferson in uh, the election of 1800, the most bitter election in American history. Yes, even more bitter than current generations of, of competition. And in those days, every newspaper proudly, proudly announced their bias. They were either Federalist or anti-Federalist. Everybody knew. And when Jefferson was elected president, the newspaper that favored him, he was sure, he made sure 
in the open that they got all the printing contracts for the then tiny federal government. And that's, that's the way it was. So any, any time people look back to the good old days with pure journalism, it never existed. Uh, newspapers always had a bias, and the important, at least in those days, they announced their bias. They didn't pretend they were objective and mislead the public. They, in those days, they were proudly biased, the way Fox and MSNBC and CNBC and CNN are not announcing their bias, but everybody knows they have no pretense to being objective. And therefore, people don't select their media to get the news. They select the media to have a confirmation bias, to be told that they are right. People watch the news that they identify with so they can, for a couple hours a night, be told, hey, Mr. Reader or Mr. Watcher, you are exactly right and you are very smart. So let's not pretend that people need their information from the media. There are plenty of other sources of information besides mainstream media. Now, to your question, you were somewhat critical of the voting public. Now, I will say, yes, the voting public is remarkably uninformed on the issues, but so am I. And you know what, Craig? They are uninformed because voters are asked to vote on information that they simply haven't got the time to learn about. How can they study economics, foreign policy, immigration law, uh, the environment? How could a voter be an expert on all of those subjects? Well, you can't if you want to have a life. So what you do is you simply... If you're going to exercise the vote, you use what is called voter shortcuts. You select people who you have selected as being wise and smart and have devoted their time to studying an issue. And you hitch your wagon to those horses. That's what I do. I find really smart people that I trust. And I let them do all the hard work, and I can go about my life, and I just learn from them. We do that all the time in our voting. We elect somebody to be a senator so they can think about this stuff, and we can go about our lives. We elect people to be in city council so they can study all those boring bills, and we can go play golf. So the thought of outsourcing the task of citizenship shouldn't be abhorrent to people. We do it all the time. And so I don't expect people to spend day and night studying the complexities of climate change and environmental and whether Iran has broken the nuclear treaty, I would say get a life. Hire people. They're called elected officials to do the work for you, and you just get your information from smart people. When you're sick, you go to a doctor. Well, same thing. You're outsourcing medicine. You, you could study medical books, but why bother? Hire a doctor. I'd rather hire smart people to do the learning for me, and I trust their opinion the way I trust my doctor and my lawyer and my accountant. I trust the professionals, and therefore I am not critical of people for not being informed. All right, but let me ask you an important question here, Bob, because it, it, it begs this even in the waning moments of our conversation tonight, and that is if, for example, I am looking to find a physician to treat a malady that I have, I can look at uh, education, I can look at white papers, 
rewards, societies that he belongs to, whether or not there have been multiple malpractice lawsuits against him or her, and get a pretty good idea as to their level of, of expertise and and uh, uh, how successful they are in their particular chosen profession for whatever kind of medical need that I might have. The problem, I think, is that far too many people in their outsourcing of that task, and you're right, it is gargantuan, it is overwhelming, it is way too complex to expect anyone to have a life, raise a family, go to work, and be an expert on all these matters. So you go to third-party sources like your show, my show, others, to get that information. The problem is, I think, far too few people do the research to find out exactly who it is that they are listening to and what information that they are being fed, consuming, and therefore taking as take it to the bank fact that then influences or informs, quote-unquote, their decisions, and therein, I think, lies the problem, that we put more care into what movie we're going to watch on Netflix tonight than the kind of information that we that we look at, or if I'm going to get a doctor who says, Craig, you need a serious surgery, it's going to cost $300,000, you'll be hospitalized for 10 weeks, the first thing I'm going to do is... I need to get a second opinion. I think the problem, Bob, is that far too few people get information about the sources that they're reliant upon and then never bother to seek out a second opinion. That's the weakness of democracy. If you, to the extent that you're right, you're making a compelling argument against the right to vote. If people are incompetent to vote, then you're arguing in favor of another form of government. I just say, don't put so much power in government so that if people make mistakes in their voting, they can't do that much damage because government can't do that much damage. So you have made a compelling case against democracy that we have too much of it and a compelling case that since democracy is what produces the quality of government, if we acknowledge that democracy has its weaknesses, but we should have it, but let's weaken the adverse effects by reducing the power of government and give more power over our lives to ourselves. And then it's, Craig, problem solved. Well, that, that could be, but my, my broader argument to my point is, is not that we have an excess of democracy and therefore let's have less and less of it. I mean, it almost seemingly we're heading in that direction now anyway. It's that we have too much uninformed democracy. Listen, if we're going to have a government that is a sense of, of self-government, you know, of by and for the people, and, and we're going to essentially not say we don't want a king, we're rather going to elect people who will represent us, at least doesn't it make sense to make sure as we are in the process of making these little kings out there and electing these people to represent us that we're sure that there are people that have somewhat of a knowledge as to what they're doing and we have some kind of an idea whether or not they're going to steer the country in the right direction or blow it up? You bet. You're exactly right. And you and I both wish voters devoted a little bit more energy to studying the issues. We only can, by shows like yours, Craig, you encourage, you bring out the best in people, and you encourage voters to be painlessly more informed, because your show makes it so easy. And voters can therefore use the knowledge they get from your show um, and exercise their franchise, their voting franchise, more effectively. You and I both wish that was the case. We can just do the best we can and hope that and trust in the voters to 
take advantage of the information that's available. That's all we can do. You know, I go back to that uh, that quote from Ben Franklin after they had uh, had the constitutional meeting there over uh, the, the forming of our government, and the question was asked to um, uh, Franklin, uh, Ben Franklin, what what kind of government do you have? We have given you a constitutional republic if you can keep it. All I am suggesting to kind of underscore what Bob just said there is, if we're going to keep it, can you put a little bit more effort into it than you put into deciding what shoes to wear when you go out, what movie to watch when you sit down with your significant other tonight? That's all I'm asking. I go to the polling place and I see people show up ballot in hand and they are reading the propositions as they're standing at the bowling, in, the, in the polling place trying to decide where their vote is going to be, meaning that they've invested all of the 20 seconds that it takes to read the description of the ballot measure, for example. I'm thinking, really? I mean, is that all the democracy is worth to you? If that be the case, then you wind up with the government that you deserve, and if we're unable to keep the constitutional republic that has been so brilliantly crafted and given to us to hold, to preserve, and to cherish, then maybe the whole thing blowing up, as I said a moment ago, figuratively speaking, maybe that's exactly the kind of government that we deserve. Bob Zadek will dive deeper into these issues, as he always does on his program, Sunday mornings, 8 o'clock, here in the Bay Area on 860 AM. The answer, we get email all the time about people that discover the show, love him, want more, want to know more. Check him out online at bobzadek.com. Got a friend somewhere else you think would really benefit from Bob's understanding and insights that invite him to tune in. He's heard all over the West Coast, and you can get a complete map of stations near you or near a friend or neighbor at bobzadek.com, B-O-B-Z-A-D-E-K.com. Thanks to Bob Zadek for an update here on this Tuesday edition of Lifeline. Speaking of updates, let's get one on traffic. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, welcome back to the conversation. Well, here's some raw, difficult numbers. Took us nine months to go from zero to 10 million people infected with COVID-19 in the United States. And it took us two weeks to go from 10 million to 11 million. And certainly, as promised by Dr. Fauci, we would go into a very cold winter more about the impact of COVID than perhaps about his forecast of the weather. That said, we're here. And as more and more municipalities, more specifically counties across the state, put in tougher orders, moving from red to purple. I'm still trying to figure out how purple became worse than red, but we'll leave that for another show. Um, We sit here now with the dilemma of how do we protect ourselves, protect our families, still go about conducting business, keeping the doors of America open for for business, so to speak, and all the while figuring out this hodgepodge of rules and regulations across the state that says to a bar or a strip club, yeah, you can be open, but the church can't be. Huh? What? Let's get a look at where we're at now with Brad Dacus, constitutional lawyer, founder and president of the Pacific Justice Institute. I understand, Brad, that there has been recently a lawsuit filed in San Diego, <coughs> pardon me, in San Diego, uh, dealing with this very topic. Uh, strip clubs want to be open, but of course, having a church open, well, that's in clear violation. 
What's going on, and why does it seem as if somebody is at a roulette table deciding what the rules and regulations ought to be here? Uh, Yeah, it it really makes no sense. I mean, we're talking about, it's a state court, not a federal court, but a state superior court judge uh, has uh, given a temporary uh, restraining order, so it's not permanent. But still, it's it's very disturbing. Uh, And his basic rationale of this is the same basic rationale that we've been advocating for churches. In fact, it's even shallower in that it's just free speech. They say that uh, this violates the free speech rights of, of uh, strip clubs to for women to express themselves. Uh, you know. who, who argued that case? Larry Flint? <laughs> yeah. Well, and unfortunately, the Supreme Court has, has, acknowledged, has ruled this way, that porn and strip clubs and all this stuff is uh, somehow covered under free speech, and this is a, not this Supreme Court, but uh, a liberal Supreme Court in the past. And and yet, here we have churches that have actual speech, and, and not only that, but also the free exercise of religion, which are, is another uh, clause of the First Amendment, the free exercise clause, and, and they're getting uh, short-shifted and, and uh, not allowed to have the same um, opportunity to meet amidst uh, some 41 counties in California now being put back on purple, uh, which is effectively uh, disqualifying all indoor services for churches in those counties, which is outrageous. Now, at some point, somebody made the argument, well, you know, the churches are closed, but, the, but you know, the, the liquor store is opened. You know, I, and I commented a couple of times on the program that that's a, a little bit of a, a, a disjointed argument because the last time I checked, you don't go into a liquor store and sit there for two hours, sing hymns, and, and gather closely. You walk in, you get your stuff, your cigarettes, your whatever, and you leave. But... You're talking about a strip club that has people going in in tight quarters, closed doors, real dark atmosphere, dank uh, uh, air circulation, and there could be, I don't know, I've never been in one, but, you know, hundreds of people in there, I'm supposing, and in the eyes of the state, that's okay. I, I mean, a, again, it just seems that, you know, if we want to get a handle on this this situation uh, before more Americans die, at the very least, can we come up with a logical, consistent policy that makes sense? So with all of this, as I said before, it seems like they're at the roulette table deciding what laws go in and which regulations go in and which ones get tossed out. Where do we stand right now with cases like this? For example, the one uh, that many of us are aware of close to home, uh, Pastor Mike McClure, uh, his father Don, of course, both uh, had longtime presence here on KFAX at Calvary Chapel down in San Jose. Where do churches like that stand, where they're, they're having services and they're being told not only that you can't, but here's a big price tag and fines because you are? Yeah, that's still an ongoing litigation. Uh, that's... Uh uh, you know, it's, it's going to be a case that I don't expect to be resolved soon. I do say this, though, in the big scheme. Well, first, uh, I know we at Pacific Justice Institute will be have, have a number of cases ourselves, and uh, depending on pastors being currently prosecuted for a church up there in the Bay Area uh, and, and other cases in, in multiple states. Uh, I will say this. I do believe that at the end of the day, this has to go before the United States Supreme Court. And the good news is because of President Donald Trump's appointment of Justice Barrett to the Supreme Court, we now have, I believe, very confidently, the five votes 
to finally rule that churches are essential, uh, that they are entitled high priority to be open because they are essential because of the First Amendment's guarantee. Uh, second, uh, that, uh, that the courts cannot uh, treat them differently than other institutions that are allowed to be open, like liquor stores, uh, et cetera. So I think uh, that, uh, that this, these kinds of cases, like the strip club, that'll be helpful moving forward uh, as we argue the lunacy of these kinds of, of, uh, of actions, and especially against churches. But also in the long run, I do think, Craig, we're going to see a solid victory specifically because of President Trump's recent appointment to the Supreme Court. And I'm very optimistic, and I can assure you, I can't get the details, but we at Pacific Justice are moving aggressively in that direction. Brad Dacus, constitutional lawyer, founder and president of the Pacific Justice Institute. More information on the web at pacificjustice.org. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Well, if you've been uh, shopping lately, be it at a big box store, your local grocery store, whatever have you, uh, no doubt you've felt a little bit of confusion. Confusion because as much as you see all of the uh, decorations and uh, (laughs) holiday trappings for Christmas, just a little early. I've got some neighbors that, in fact, have already put up the big blow-up Santa and all this business in the front yard. Um... We have to be reminded that before we get to Christmas, there's Thanksgiving. And it is, in fact, just a week and a couple of days away. And maybe you've already thought, if you've not picked up the turkey yet, you're making some room in the refrigerator for it. And albeit perhaps a bit of a muted uh, holiday experience for your family, you're going to do something regardless. It is an important time of the year. And it comes at a time when America has gone through so much pain because of the impact of covid the tragic, unnecessary loss of life that now is pushing toward a quarter of a million people. But along with that, all of the jobs that have been lost, people that have had their jobs, if not lost, reduced significantly. Maybe they're now um, uh, no longer enjoying health insurance benefits, and they're just really struggling. Probably few parts of the country that will struggle as deeply as we will in the San Francisco Bay Area, if for no other reason than just how high our cost of living is here and that if you're earning enough in an unemployment check to make rent in the Midwest, you're probably okay to be able to put food on the table. Here, you're probably negotiating with the landlord saying, eventually I'll pay you the balance. So for literally thousands of families across the pay area, they are facing some very troubling times. And we want to do something special for them, which is why, again, this year we've partnered with the Bay Area Rescue Mission. And to get an update on progress on our effort to try and raise the funds to provide 1,500 needy families with boxes of hope filled with a traditional Thanksgiving meal that will provide each family about 20 full plates of food. We're joined now by the Executive Director of the Bay Area Rescue Mission, John Anderson, with an update. John, always good to have you on the program. Give us a bit of an update. I would imagine that this is getting to be a very busy time right now at the Bay Area Rescue Mission. Well, Craig, it it certainly is. Today's the 17th of November. That means there's only nine days before Thanksgiving Day. 
that at the Bay Area Rescue Mission, we actually provide boxes of hope two days earlier than that, so it's one week away, and then the Thanksgiving meals are provided the day before Thanksgiving, eight days away. And while donations are still coming in from our wonderful KFAX listeners and other Salem Radio friends, the the total right now stands at $25,000. And when that's doubled by our wonderful challenge grant, it becomes $50,000. But as great as news as that is, Craig, here's the other part of the story. That means that we're able to provide 1,250 boxes of hope right now. Our goal is to have 1,500 boxes of hope. That means we still need to raise another $10,000 between now and next Monday. So we are shy. We have, and and I want to explain to listeners that that every year the Bay Area Rescue Mission conducts a sign-up um, so that people who are needy um, sign up to receive a box of hope for their family, and and then they are distributed. They should already come up with a number of 1,500. Well, that's where the number comes from. So these are people that a commitment has been made to to receive a box of hope at Thanksgiving, and we have enough for 1,250 families, but there are 1,500 that have signed up. And, you know, it's, it's real easy here tonight, uh, John Anderson. If a listener right now gave a gift of $80 with the matching grant, which doubles, of course, that gift amount as during this period for a limited time, every dollar you give, thanks to a generous, generous benefactor, is being matched dollar for dollar. So a $80 gift with the challenge grant means that four families will receive a traditional Thanksgiving dinners and plenty more for about 20 meals uh, per family. So it's a great opportunity to literally double your impact, and you can go to kfax.com, click on the Bay Area Rescue Mission banner at the top of our homepage, and securely give that gift Online and John, I know that uh, we're we're talking about an average of um, uh, about forty dollars per family. So again, with the matching grant, if yeah, somebody can give forty dollars with the matching grant, that's two families. Eighty dollars uh, will care for the needs of four families. One hundred and sixty will take care of eight families. Very easy to do the math. And uh, if we all pull together in very short order, we can make sure that all fifteen hundred families will receive. Thanksgiving boxes of hope. But I want to mention, too, John, that in addition to that, you're going to be serving literally tens of thousands of individual meals of people coming to and through the Bay Area Rescue Mission in the coming days as well. Yeah, that's true, Craig. You know, this year it's more of a challenge because of COVID-19. In fact, Contra Costa County just uh, upgraded the danger alert uh, to the highest level for COVID-19. So we're still trying to figure out how we're going to pull that off and have more than 10,000 Thanksgiving meals being served at the Bay Area Rescue Mission and be in compliance with uh, county health officials and the COVID-19 restrictions. But this much I know, God has a way of getting things done. And you know what? I, I just want to pause right now before we reach the top of the hour and, and, and pray for you, John, and the team at the Bay Area Rescue Mission. I want people to understand 
this is enormous. This is this is this is gargantuan proportions where there is such an enormous need exponentially this year because of the tens of thousands of people that have been thrown out of work and are suddenly living a month to month existence. The delay in getting further stimulus money because of the fight taking place between the administration and Congress, which is no new news, but it it means that people that were counting on the extra help are not going to receive it, certainly not going to receive it any time before the end of the year. So we're, we're looking at pretty bleak times. So an exponential increase in the need in a region that's already hampered by an outrageously high cost of living higher than anywhere else in the country, and then we add to that the component of COVID-19, almost having a double whammy, meaning that people lose their jobs because of COVID, and then the ability of the Bay Area Rescue Mission to address those needs is being hampered because of all the new rules and regulations, again, because of COVID. So let's just pray for a moment. If you're in your car right now, join me. Father, we just pray for families all across the Bay Area, the state, and our country that are suffering tonight, that are going into a holiday season with fear and doubt and enormous economic challenges. They don't know where to go or to whom they can turn. They're scared right now, and they're very worried about the health of their families, what they're going to tell their children at Thanksgiving or at Christmas. And Lord, we just look to you to touch every heart and life that you would bless them, that you would make your presence felt before them, and that you would use us as vessels through which your love might flow to minister to the needs of these families, to express your love and concern directly to these families and let them know they're not forgotten, they are not abandoned, that not only do you love them, but in your name, we love them as well. Father, empower each and every one of us to do our part to make a difference, to be a blessing to these that are less fortunate than we are. And remember that in the end, our very sustenance, our very blessings flow from you. So we're really not taking what is ours and giving to others, but rather simply being a channel through which you pass these blessings on to others less fortunate than us. And, Lord, we just ask for your hand of protection upon the Bay Area Rescue Mission in Jesus' name. I want to challenge you as we wrap up the top of the hour. Go to kfax.com and give as large a gift as you possibly can. As John Anderson just mentioned, we did a fantastic job because of your love and generosity last week. But there's a bit more to go. We have 250 more families that need to be adopted. Would you adopt one or two or however many today? $40 is what it takes to provide a box of hope to a family that will include traditional Thanksgiving meal and all the trimmings with enough to feed about 20 plates of food that will get the average family through several days of meals for just $40. Because of the matching challenge grant, that will be doubled, which means you'll be able to provide that for not one but two families. So whether you give 20 bucks. And see that double to meet the needs of a family, 40 that will care for two families, 60 that will care for uh, uh, more. Or, of course, you know, as, as I suggested, maybe somebody listening right now could give $160. That means you will be able to provide meals this Thanksgiving for not just four, but for eight 
needy families with the matching grant. Go give every dollar you give matched, every dollar you give tax deductible at kfax.com and look for the Bay Area Rescue Mission banner at the top of our homepage. It's easy to give. It'll be a blessing to these needy families right here at home in the Bay Area. Would you go and do right now? kfax.com, feed the needy and our neighbors and friends this Thanksgiving. Go to kfax.com and look for the Bay Area Rescue Mission banner at the top of our homepage. Our thanks to John Anderson for that update.